Hey everybody, it's Chuck. We're going to talk about some serious stuff today on the podcast. Ashley Watt and her Antina Ranch, the struggles with Chevron, so I don't want to make light of that. But I do need to warn you, today's podcast, a lot of engineering porn. You're going to hear all about squeeze jobs, the analyst, backside pressure, isolating zones, etc. I think they even say anhydrites in the whole thing. But... That being said, later on in the podcast, as we get through the engineering stuff, the talk of the implications, the talk of the PR of the industry, the regulatory body's responsibility and the like, it's pretty good stuff that I think everybody needs to listen to. Hey everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, and from the Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast news desk, we're actually going to do our first official follow-up on a podcast. So as you folks remember, in episode 34, Ashley Watt shared her family struggle with Chevron out on their ranch, out on their cattle ranch in West Texas, and what we've done is uh, we're very fortunate Bill, tell me your last name. I just blanked. No worries, Birch, B-U-R-C-H. <laughs> I can't believe that. I've like stage fright on my own podcast. <laughs> We're very fortunate today to have Bill Birch on. And Bill is a consultant for Ashley out on her ranch as she's dealing with Chevron. I'm going to turn it over to um, Bill in just a second to give you a little bit of his background as well as lay the stage for uh, what's going on out there and the work that Chevron's done and maybe the implications for that. But we're also joined by Chris Bird on the line. And Chris, before we get to Bill, one, thanks for coming on. Hello, welcome to uh, to the podcast. Why don't you give a little bit of your background for the world, Chris? I know everybody knows who you are, but my mom listens to this and she probably hasn't met you yet. Uh, yeah, no, thanks for having me on, Chuck. Uh, you know, my background is basically a uh, petroleum engineer, um, worked as a kind of completions production field guy for first five or six years of my career, and then office production engineer, and then uh, in 2016, so about five years ago, started up a company that uh, I operate as the president of called Exponent Energy. Um, we are predominantly an oil producing company, uh, vertical Oklahoma, shallow oil. We do a lot of water floods, things like that. Um, drill probably 40 wells this year. Um, we keep probably three workover rigs busy in the field every day. And so just, um, just that that's kind of what I do every day. That's- you know, it's 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 funny. Somebody one time asked me to compare and contrast myself with you and I said, "Well, let's do it this way. When the great freeze was happening and ERCOT in Texas was blowing up, Chris was out making sure all his natural gas wells were producing cuz he was making bank on that and I think Bloomberg wrote a story about you during that. 
I was packing up my cat in the carrier in case and going over to my parents' house that was powered by Tesla batteries because my uh, my electricity had gone out. And I think that pretty much describes the difference between us. <laughs> Fair enough. So, Bill, appreciate you coming on as well. Why don't you give us a little bit of your background and then if you could kind of launch into just look, you know, as we as I said earlier, my mom's listening to this. She may or may not have listened to the one with Chevron, but just Chevron and Ashley. If you'll just give us a little overview of, of the ranch, what's up out there, and then kind of dive into what Chevron's been doing, we'd love to hear it. Yeah, no worries. Well, thanks, Chuck, for having me on, and uh, thanks again uh, for the invites to the crawfish boil at your house back in April. It was my first time to get out of uh, COVID solitary confinement for months on end, so it was actually nice to <laughs> not only have good tasting crawfish, but uh, get it out social again. So thanks again for as, the invite. As my daughter said, Dad, why are you having a super spreader event at your house? And I was like, hey, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> I'm vaccinated at this point, so... Well, you know, I got to make a shameless plug here. Who provided the crawfish and cooked them, Chuck? Quick note, my attorneys have asked me to point out at this point in the podcast that I, Chuck Yates, was merely a venue host that day. I procured no alcohol. I distributed no alcohol. The crawfish boil was a digital Wildcatters production. Oh, was it? Was it? I, I will. Uh, I will let you answer that because I don't want to misspeak. It's exponent energy, man. Ah, very, very cool of you. The uh, I knew you may or may not have been there. You know, <laughs> <laughs> we may or may not have said hi. One, <laughs> one, one last thing. Since uh, uh, Chris, since we're both friends with the person, I'll go ahead and tell this story because I haven't said it on the podcast, and it may explain some of my weird Twitter behavior, but. My parents were at the crawfish boil. I don't know if you met them. They were sitting inside my house because they really wanted to hear Lindsay L. play music. And it worked perfect. You know, she was loud enough. They could hear it sitting in there. And so dear friend Shale Unikitty was at the crawfish boil. I don't think I'm doxing anything by saying that. And uh, may or may not have had one too many drinks. This is all said with love. But anyway, Shale uh, Unikitty walks up to my dad and uh, says, hey, 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 I'm Kitty. And my dad looks at him and goes, I'm Kenny Lay. And, <laughs> and, and, and Kitty freaked out. No, really, we heard Kenny Lay's here. And my dad's like, going, shh, 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 stop that. And so anyway, that's the running Twitter joke between me and Kenny Lay when it's like, Hey dad, how are you? Good son, and uh, and all that. I uh, I think Shale Unikitty kind of figured out a little bit later that hey maybe uh, maybe my dad really isn't Kenny Lay, but it was funny. So anyway, appreciate the crawfish, and I'm glad both you guys may or may not have been there because uh, I think that was a lot of fun. As I always say, nothing happened to my house. The 400 people there were incredibly respectful, nice. My house was spotless when the crawfish boil was over. It was all the other idiot podcasters from Digital Wildcatters that spent the night at my house that destroyed it that night. So anyway, we'll do the crawfish boil again. Hey, Bill, I cut you off. Why don't we uh, Why don't we go back to it? Give us a little of your background and tell us what's going on out at the ranch. So I've been upstream oil and gas drilling completions uh, intervention for the last 21 years. Uh, Started my career with Schlumberger Wireline in the Middle East, 
moved to Halliburton on a working for Barry's son as a directional driller, global MWD, LWD specialist. Traveled around the world with them for four years, went to grad school at LSU, joined Wild Well Control, uh, got uh, front row seats to the greatest circus in town during the BP Macondo incident. Uh, left there, went to work for Chevron as a consultant in 2013. Uh, basically, dealt with Chevron, North Sea, Chevron, uh, Gulf of Mexico. Uh, did some work for Pemex, a few other independents, uh, and then 2017, I decided to kind of hang it up, um, broke down the well control company I had started, decided to kind of rechange course, got into farming and uh, kind of was enjoying retirement. Uh, slowly got dragged back out in 18 to do some work in the Permian on mechanical Pacific energy drilling technology. And then in 19, uh, took the offer to go to uh, Algeria with CUD. Uh, did some work there on their deep gas projects with the Repsol GRN project by the old French nuclear testing sites. And then ended up back in Kuwait again, uh, kind of full circle uh, and left Kuwait at the end of November with the COVID crisis and inability to travel and living two weeks of every hitch and lockdown quarantine sucked. So uh, said enough of that, came home and really kind of uh, been kicking back. And in December, I got awarded my very first patent on hydrogen. So uh, kind of starting to make the transition myself to alternative energy. But just like that third shitty scene in uh, The Godfather, you know, it's it's it, once you think you get a legitimate exit out of oil and gas, they pull you back in. And uh, lo and behold, here I am sitting on another blowout. Gotcha. The uh, well, what's so so kind of kind of said it. Uh, I I opened up a little bit about it, but you obviously know the details. I mean, this is this ranch has been under a lease, I believe, since 1924, original Gulf, and so obviously Chevron. Take take it from there and just sort of lay out what you got out there in West Texas on the cattle ranch. Not a worry. So the the ranch is south of I-20 as you get towards Monahan. It's kind of between Monahan, Sand Hill, and the lovely booming metropolis of Monaghan's, Texas. Uh, it sits between 1233 and 385 on the south side towards Grand Falls. It's 22,000 acres. It actually consists of two separate oil fields. Uh, one is called the Shipley Field, which is basically a Queen Sands uh, production scenario, which is mostly in the southern section of the field. And it's the easternmost aspect of the Queen Sand uh, lobe down there. And then the northern side of the ranch, the Estes Field, is part of the Sand Hills West oil field. Uh, and it's actually where Gulf Oil first drilled as an extension heading westbound, coming out of the main Sand Hills field here. And if you're familiar with the geology a bit down here, um, you know, kind of just a quick vertical, you, you've got your surface aquifers, the rustler, the salado, which is the salt. Then you get into the Tansil Gates members. Below that's the Queen, then the, I'm sorry, Seven Rivers, the Queen Sands. Uh, and then you get the Glorietta and then the San Andres. So the San Andres is the production field for the Estes and the Shipley field is a Queensland production field. So you can kind of get an idea of depth wise. We're not talking anything deeper than 4,000, 5,000 feet. Most, most of it actually is in like 4,000, 3,900 to 4,200 foot depths for the San Andres. Uh, and the Southern field is actually shallower because of the queen. It's like 2,600 to 2,900 feet deep. So these are deep vertical post holes. Like this is classic old 1940s, 1950s drilling completion technology. And, and it's interesting because of the age of the field and golf's work from 1943 with the Estes one 
through to the basically late early 2000s when the last wells were drilled. They're basically all a two-string design of some degree, with the exception of the very first Gulf oil wells, which were three-string designs. They ran a 16-inch or 16 and 7 eighths to 155 feet, drilled a 9 and 7, drilled their 12 and a quarter hole, set their 9 and 5 eighths. And those wells, they set them deep, so like 38, 37, 3,800, and then entered the reservoir. It's a very, basically top set the reservoirs. In the other scenarios, they set eight and five eights at 155, 200 feet, 250 feet deep, depending on the timeline in the early 50s. And then they ran five and a half inch um, down to TD to the reservoir. And so th this comes into play significantly because as we move down the, what happened at the Estes 20, the 24, the 16, the 101, you start to see now the impact of the casing design starting to have impact on where potential flow paths and where things are are going here so they asked us 24 which is hey, the hey bill let me cut you off just real quick so so 40s and 50s drilling how many wells ballpark are out there producing when's the last time a well was drilled out there and just to make sure i'm clear sounds like kind of shale revolution passed this by so no big wolf camp horizontals out there or any kind of modern type development do i have that right okay. That is correct. The so in the basin in the Monahans region, you're in Central Basin. So you're too far east of the Delaware and you're too far west of the Midland Basin. You're not. We're a little bit further west of the Central Arch, which is kind of the defining component of the, of the Central Basin. So the Sand Hills field sits just to the west of the Central Arch. The thing with the with this with these designs and eras, there's probably there's probably eighty wells that were drilled by 1960 in the Estes field. And there's probably another 20 since the sixties, mostly water flood uh, in terms of their, their, their patterns and they're trying to sweep oil effectively. Uh, the last well drilled is actually a tubs well, which is a little bit deeper reservoir target by another operator. They've come in and they've drilled a few Devonian play wells uh, and they're at like 6,200 feet. Um, but again, still a two string design. And unfortunately, and, and, and as you said, this is, the way the central arch kind of worked and the way things pinched out, the the Wolf Camp series that you see more in the Delaware Basin isn't really here on this ranch. Um, and, and there are a couple wells, just as an FYI, they're drilled all the way down at the Ellenberger by golf in the early 70s, uh, down to 8,300 feet, uh, just to kind of stick their nose down there and see what's down there. But uh, nothing, nothing came about commercial. Gotcha. So what... So what started kind of the, the the latest round of, for lack of a better word, we'll call it a kerfuffle. It's <laughs> a nice way of putting it. Um, well, so as Ashley said in our previous podcast, you know the, the discovery, the discovery at the surface from the surface expressions on the two wells. There's the Riston 68, which is part of the Shipley Field in the south, and and it's actually the easternmost well in the Shipley Field on the very cusp of the edge of the of the Shipley Field. The Riston 68 was a pretty straightforward re-entry uh, because Gulf Oil never really plug and abandoned it worth a damn in, 60, in uh, 68. So they drilled that well in 59, plug and abandoned in 68. They actually did a bullshit job on the, the Railroad Commission kind of just signed off with the good old boy network back in the late 60s. And the, all they did was basically set a... a what almost looks like, and I kid you not, a cardboard fence post retaining sleeve 
a uh, couple sacks of cement, a piece of two and three-eighths tubing coming up out of the ground that said Riston 68. Uh, when we got down to subsurface and got it excavated and cut back, you could see the weld plate where they had welded this surface casing sleeve that there was uh, water flowing out of the top of it. Um, so we got it cut back with a MacTech saw. We got it exposed, um, got a vac truck in there and basically just sucked the hell out of it. There was no pressure below it. We hot tapped it below, no pressure below. Uh, sucked out the water. And then basically at that point, um, got a cool tubing unit rig in to go in, ran all the way down to 680 feet. The case was used at 612 feet. We didn't hit a single restriction inside of the eight and five eights. Golf, when they had originally plugged in a band in the well, had cut the five and a half inch long string at 1,210 feet and theoretically had plugged the bottom. Uh, and of course, when they cemented the five and a half in place in 1959, they got cement lift to like 20, 22, 2100 feet, 1900 feet, somewhere there, depending on where wherever they're estimated top. Now, one of the drawbacks of this old field, is, as you may or may not be aware of, is that the records are really, really hard to find. And the drilling reports, you know, the IEDC tally sheets and things like that, they don't exist. So it's, you're, you're kind of going off of either the PNA, the W3s from the PNA reports, or you're kind of just trying to use best guess estimations of where you think certain stuff is. But the conundrum on the 68 was that the 68 well, the base of it was never isolated sufficiently because we had hydrocarbon physically at surface within the old concrete cellar. Uh, and, and really, honestly, there wasn't anything in that interval of the Queen Sands. The Yates and the Tansill formations don't flow hydrocarbons, that the Queen Sand was basically the next interval. So the hydrocarbon was coming up from a poorly plugged and abandoned five and a half from 1968. The kick of it is that when we asked the question to the Rare Commission regarding reentry of the five and a half, they gave us a ton of excuses, all of the formation, it will collapse. There's, we're not going to make them realistically have to go in and take on this complicated scenario. And I'm like, what in the hell? If this had been the state of California, just to put it on the record, they would have had to spend a half a million dollars in attempts to try to re-enter the five and a half. And if Chevron says they're going to operate at the highest quality standards in the industry, in the state of California records, they would have had to have done it. In the state of Texas, they didn't have to do it. We ran that coil tubing in on that two and, two and three-eighths coil, and we got all the way down. We didn't hit a single restriction of 680. And the Royal Commission said, boys, that's as far as you have to go. You can stop. And I'm like, no. I'm like, keep running in. Hit, see if you hit the top of the tubing at 1210. Like, you, if you hit a restriction, of course, before that, fine. We can make a decision whether we have to really try to drill ahead and open hole and try to find the original five and a half or not. But they really made no illegitimate effort to attempt to try to reenter or confirm plugging of the five and a half. So this is where you start to ask questions around the wrist and field and say, okay, what's going on here? My records indicate this well was plugged. I'm seeing a scenario out here that the well is not plugged. Uh, I got hydrocarbon surface coming from the reservoir. So eventually, after a bit of challenges and coil tubing issues, we got a cement plug, first plug put. The first plug completely fell out. Went back in, tagged top of the plug. There is no plug. Uh, the irony of the joke on location at the time was, well, maybe we got a plug in the five and a half finally. And I'm like, you know, I get it, but it's not really copacetic. Like the, these are wells we have to put away for a thousand to 10,000 year life cycle. And you're, you're just slagging it off that you didn't even take any effort to realistically try to get in and get the five and a half. So we got the cert, we did a second plug, we tagged off the plug. And, and here's where I'm gonna get in a little bit of the, the aquifer problem, right? So Ashley's interest, and a lot of people think, oh, she's just a greedy landowner is bitching about mineral rights. She doesn't get a check out of any of this, right? She doesn't own the surface rights. I mean, she owns the surface rights. She doesn't own any of the mineral rights. She doesn't get a royalty check. 
her only interest legitimately is the groundwater for maintaining the ranch's aspects of both cattle and for consumption, right? So when we asked the question around the rustler, around isolation of the rustler, Schlumberger came out and ran a corrosion log. The eight and five eighths casing cement job is crap. Again, it's 1959. Like, I'm not surprised to see that there's voids and there's gaps in the backside of the eight and five eighths. So we're going to have to squeeze and remediate at some point here before they super plug out the eight and five eighths. But the issue that came up was the fact that, like, we started a discussion of what is considered fresh water in West Texas. And this is a really interesting point that there's a lot of people who say that the, the rustler formation, because of its natural salinity, its brackish water, is not a future, it's not a recoverable freshwater resource in the state of Texas. And in Ward County, which this well is technically just on the cusp of Ward County, it's in Crane County, Crane County doesn't have any restriction for the rustler. So there's no mandatory requirements of having to protect the rustler. But generally speaking, the rustler, like if you live in El Paso, your water comes from the rustler through reverse osmosis of the rustler. The future of the freshwater aquifer out here is the rustler. So when you start getting into this situation where people are going to say, well, we're here to protect the freshwater from the Texas Water Board or the Railroad Commission or from even Chevron, and then turn around and say, well, we don't give a damn about protecting the rustler. Now you got a bit of a, okay, there's something going on here. Like, I'm, I'm still struggling to understand how we, there's two sides of this argument occurring. Either the rustler is worth protecting or it's not worth protecting. So that's been a whole kind of conundrum of it. Long story short on the rest in 68, after we got the cement plug, it's currently now been a month of bubble testing. It's got a bit of a vacuum on it at the last bubble test we did. Uh, it's pulling water into it. And uh, presumably in the next couple of weeks, Chevron will come back out with their baby coil unit, punch holes, squeeze, and then we're going to super plug it to the surface and put a final stake post in the rest in 68. So there, it's the tail of two wells on the ranch. But the one thing I want to be very clear about is that the the southern field has not seen the underground blow-up pressure regime that we've seen in the Estes in the north. So it kind of keep this as two different sets of problems. Ironically, came up at the same time, but different different set of problems. Gotcha. So, so the well you were talking about, that's the infamous red bucket well, right, that we, we saw the picture that's of? The, yeah, the Estes, yeah, the Estes, the Estes 24 is the famous red bucket well. The Riston 68 was also flowing water at the time with hydrocarbon at surface, but again, it, it's that one. It, I think in some of the Twitter <clears throat> Twitter conversations and in some of the things that were put out there, I think people got confused to understand that there's really two different oil fields, two different sets of circumstances, two different sets of, of formations, different depths, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm going to get way out of my league real quick. So, Chris, at any point you want to you want to shut me up. Uh, feel free to do it but just I guess when we look at this and following it on Twitter as well as you know I talked to Ashley for a couple hours around the the podcast and all you know we definitely have an old PNA well that was blowing you know blowing water and other stuff at the surface I think the the bigger implications that you hinted at is what's going on underneath the surface and do we have something quote unquote really bad happening and potentially groundwater is uh, gonna be contaminated and you know, unfortunately Ashley won't be able to, to run cattle out there or do you have kind of conclusions and then conclusions out there and maybe Chris, since you're the engineer and the smart one and I'm the idiot un unemployed podcast host, I'll shut up and and uh, and let you guys talk about that because I think at the end of the day, if 
Chevron just had to come in and fix an old P&A well and it dumped some water on the ground, that's not the end of the world. But if there's something bigger there, that's that's where I think the shit's hitting the fan. Yeah, so I, again, I, I just want to be clear that the, the, the two different fields have two different sets of problems. The Riston field is around fraudulent filings and unverifiable Again, in 1968, 1970, our standards for plug and abandonment were different. But we have we have both aging failed cement, if it was really done, or it was fraudulent in terms of what was actually reported. And again, on the bottom of the W3, it's the Railroad Commission signatures that did not witness. So there are things like this that you go, okay, so is this, these are the things that nobody wants to talk about in the plug and abandonment world, but, but we have a lot of these old wells that were really just, they're bullshit. You, you go back and look at their their validity and their and their accuracy, and you, now you got to realize like we went into this one. It says there's a casing plug in the shoe at 850, you know, at, at an eight and five eighths casing at you know 572 feet, something like that. Should have been top of plug, and no, it was nothing. We got down to 680 and didn't take a thing. So again, if they really did pump a job, okay, but we were unable to validate and verify it, you know, 50 years later. That doesn't leave you a warm, fuzzy feeling about the future of plug-in abandonments, the stuff that was done in the 60s and 70s, which opens the question of, are we realistically in the next decade going to be re-entering hundreds of thousands of plug-in abandoned wells that we don't trust the validity of their answers? Like, that's that's a big question. And, and something that I know a lot of people in the industry maybe didn't get through the Twitter feeds, maybe is clearly, but this really begins to ask the question of, do you trust the state of Texas records for what we know that has been done in the past? And we know that some of it's a bunch of crap. The next question comes into then the Estes field, which again, got a lot of more of the media attention, got all the AP photos and got all the drone flyovers and all that crap. So the thing with the Estes field is that again, this was, this was drilled in 43. This well in particular was drilled in 55. It was plugged in about 95, 68. It turned it into a water injector from production to, to injection. Uh, in 95, when they went to plug and abandon this well, they did a much better job. The, the, the th third-party service contractor they brought out basically isolated the bottom above the polished bore receptacle, the PBR, got a cast iron bridge plug, put cement on top of it, went up, came up the hole, shot holes at 1800, tried to circulate cement, couldn't get injection, plugged it back, uh, plugged, set another cast iron bridge plug, set a cement retainer, and then came up to surface and basically super plugged out on the septic. Now, Here's the issue on the 1995 work, and this is even true even to, to this year. The Railroad Commission does not make you verify and validate annular isolation when you punch holes through tubing or casing. In this case, so that so also just to be clear as well, the Riston 68 was an eight and five eighths by five and a half inch design. The Estes 24 is a nine and five eighths by seven inch design. So they, hopefully that will help clarify people's thinking here as well. Uh, so when we got the coil tubing unit on after after they got cut came out, cut back, wedding cake back to the seven inch, got exposure to the nine and five eighths, finally got a clean section of the nine and five eighths, put a slip lock wellhead on, then then put uh, casing slips, got the seven inch lock, ran a riser up the surface, backfilled it, we got back to, to surface for our coil tubing unit. When we got this isolated, the, the first thing to to know about the nine and five eighths scenario was that there was 115 PSI underneath the leaking welds at the top of the cut point 
um, that was flowing. So not only is it flowing to surface and squirting water, there was still 115 PSI pressure underneath there. Now, when we cut it off with the MacTech blade, it looked like a toilet overflowing. I mean, you're not, you're not talking any gas. This is just pure produced water overflowing the top of it. So once we got the wellhead on, we got it shut in, we got the riser established back, we got a frack valve that surface. You know, we now had, we now could verify that A, there was cement inside the seven inch and B, there was the flow scenario was only on the nine and five eighths by seven inch annulus. So when we got the coil tubing unit out there and we did the drill out, the thing was the plugs inside the seven inch were almost spot on depth wise. There really wasn't a lot of variation in the, the proposed depths or calculated depths versus actual depths. So that was good. So the seven inch was, was isolated. Nobody has any question about the inside of the seven inch. All of the flow in the Estes 24 was coming up the nine and five eighths by seven inch annulus. So that leads to this next question of how is the well flowing? So initially, I got to admit, when I first saw the stuff on LinkedIn that's, that uh, Stuffing Box Karen was uh, whinging about, about leaking stuffing boxes and such, I have to say, not only was I surprised by the misogyny in the industry of telling her to sit, shut up and sit down and it just needs tightened and kind of the comments that were put out there, I was truly shocked by that. But I was kind of in the same camp of like, is, it, is this really that bad? Like, yeah, okay, you got you got a nine and five eighths casing leaking at surface. Like, I've seen far worse, but okay. So as I get out there, I'm first thinking like, okay, you got one zone under the ground that's got pressure on it, and somehow you got water flow. Like, even the first couple of days of being out on location, I was a bit kind of in the same camp of a lot of other people. Of, is this really as bad as as the attention that it's getting to be? Well. Lo and behold, and surprise, as we got into the job and we started plugging back and we couldn't find the depth of where it was coming from, we eventually did find it at, when we shot holes in the seven inch casing at 1475. We found that the zone between 1326 and 1495 on the annulus is truly supercharged pressure. So we have a 19.2 pound per gallon equivalent pore pressure at 1400 feet. Uh, and when we had closed it in on the seven inch casing, we had 700 PSI. When we let it down after doing an injectivity test, we got 50 barrels back in 20 minutes, which is about a three and a half barrel a minute flow rate. Uh, so now all of a sudden you got a zone that a in 1955 never saw any pressure drilled with an eight, six mud weight, uh, salt saturated brine drilling fluids, post hole, West Texas, no issue. Well, it was plugging event in 95, didn't report any well control challenges on any of the W3. And now all of a sudden, 2021, this thing is roaring, produced water. <laughs> Something, something's wrong, right? And at the time, I'm thinking to myself, naively, foolishly, I don't know, ignorantly, that Chevron and I are on the same path of discovery at the same level of knowledge. And then I've come to realize that over the next couple of weeks that they already knew that this dissolution model of the salt water washing out of the Salado was already a realistic subsurface model. They already knew they, they didn't need to acquire more data because they already had the data they needed to know that this is how this well was flowing. And this is pressured up in that interval. And, and I was kind of stupefied by 
well, why aren't you guys taking more time to get more data and try to understand this problem more? Well, there wasn't any need to. <laughs> so that kind of shocked me a bit of like, they sold this dog of a field to Pitts Energy because of the fact that they knew this field was a disaster. They knew this was a high liability cost. They knew the fact this was an underground blowout. What's ironic of it, Chuck, is that literally this week, I got a copy of the morning reports from the Estes 20 well, which is a mile as the crow flies to the 24. And the Estes 20 well blew out December 14th of 2010 or 2020. So literally six months ago, the Estes 20 blew out. CUD got called to actually cut and cap and deal with the two inch valve that was flowing. They pumped four junk shots, got a 14.7 mud weight in it, didn't get the well killed, ended up having to pump a 17 pound per gallon. Then there was a whole series of issues in the plug and abandonment of why they couldn't get past 1661. Like this wasn't Chevron's first go around out here with produced water and corrosion and failing assets. But see, when I first got to the location, I'm thinking to myself, oh, well, we're, we're figuring this out together. Cool. Like, we're, we're, un we're trying to unravel the story. Yeah not, yeah, not so much. Interesting. Interesting. So, Chris. So, the twist is. Oh, go ahead, go Bill. Ahead. No, so I was just going to say that, that the conundrum of this is that, A, working on the annulus to try to determine flow scenarios at shallow depths is really damn difficult. So, when we ran the Slumberger. Uh, isolation scanner logs, we, we got an indication of gas pockets on the backside, potential exit path at 730 feet uh, below the casing shoe. And then we saw some anomalies in the casing string in the annulus of the 9058 by 7 inch. So once we eventually got the 7 inch cut and pulled and secured, we then were able to actually log the 9058s. And then we discovered there's two holes in the 9058s, one at 166 feet going into the Santa Rosa aquifer and then another one at 560 to 580 feet that was flowing into the rustler plus the zone at 730 feet that was eating our lunch and then maybe maybe we got the 1326 to 1495 zone isolated with four cement plugs again we never validated and confirmed the fact they're truly isolated but our hope is that that we were able to get significant enough volume of cement in there and got it secured well, Bill, this is fascinating, and you've done something I've never been able to accomplish, but you've kept Chris quiet for about 20 minutes now. So, uh, <laughs> Chris, your turn. Yeah, Chris, your turn. Thoughts, critiques, criticisms, questions. What are you thinking? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, um, I think I actually finally, after um, the uh, – the multitude of posts that I've read actually probably have a decent idea of what the scenario is, um, which is good. I think maybe I understand it. Took some notes here. And, you know, I think that the, um, there's a lot of like hyperbolic commentary that happens around these types of situations. And, you know, from what I've seen my experience, it's like, you just have to keep things very compartmentalized and you have to like focus on what is the problem what is the issue like what are we trying to protect here like and so when i hear this scenario i say okay look like there's a reason why you put surface casing into a well right like surface casing is intended to protect the water the drink you know the groundwater right and what is the groundwater well the groundwater is whatever the state of texas water board tells you the groundwater is right and so that's not for the producer to determine that is for the producer to accept as defined. Right. So like, I think 
in the question of the rustler, it's like, well, that's not a question of operator issue. That's a question of Texas Water Board issue. So let's say that like within that context, right? Like there was a famous case in Michigan with the Albion Scipio, Scipio field, right? Where the, uh, what had previously been determined as the depth of usable water was uh, decided that it was actually deeper and the state of Michigan came in and said, no, it's actually like 200 feet deeper than what we told you when you drilled all these wells, uh, you know, shut everything in, plug the field out and move on. Right. And so, and I think that happened in like the eighties. Um, so like, I just would say like, you've got to like, you know, if we're going to start pointing fingers and making blame, you're like, okay, like within this context, like, was Chevron doing things as defined, right? Like you drill a well, the water board tells you what's the base of usable water, you run surface casing to the base and you've done your job, right? And so I think that's one question that to me seems like maybe that's not like uh, something at, at issue that I would take issue with. Um, I think like if you're gonna try to say like, okay, in the 60s and 70s, uh, you know, we had environmental issues, things weren't done properly. And, you know, to me, that's not an oil and gas specific thing. That's like, you know, probably the entire world thing. Like, uh, well, Chris, you, Chris, you and I talked about this. Cause I remember when I was driving my daughter to summer school, I called you and we talked for a while and Bill, I don't know if I've told you this, but I do think kind of quote unquote, in fairness, there's nothing that happened 20 years ago in any one of the three of us lives that we probably wouldn't do different today, just with more knowledge, technology, et cetera. So I buy that point. A sure. Little. Well, I mean, you know, like when did the EPA even get formed? Like what the sixties, seventies, I mean, you know, there's certainly the love canal. The 70s, and you're, not, you're obviously not old enough to remember they was early. <laughs> it was after Earth Day, after the uh, Santa Barbara channel blowout in 69. Cal. Right. So sure. 73, 73, it was it was under Nixon. I mean, it was uh, it was a our conservative Republican president Richard Nixon uh, who uh, uh, did many things. But yeah, he he was responsible for the EPA. So I will say this, Chris, though, about the Texas Water Board. Like, so I've had some conversations with the Texas Water Board regarding their determinations and their principles behind how they determine it. Right. And one of the things that really gets me is they say, well, Crane County, because we don't really monitor the rustler, but the well, Ward County, we do. And the SS24 is literally 100 yards to the Ward County line, which is kind of ironic that they're saying, well, yeah, we, you know, our, our, our subsurface model online for Crane County shows the rustler ending at like 300 feet. And the Ward County line shows it ending at like 1,500 feet. And I reminded them that in 1955, they ran electric logs in the open hole. They have a gamma ray and a neutron log in the open hole since 1955. And the last I checked, the geology hasn't changed since 1955. So either you have geologists who were too damn lazy to read the logs, or you decided that your model didn't need input of more data points, right? So when I called them out on it, then they came back and said, oh yeah, oh yeah, you're right. We, we do have this, uh, we do have this log from 1955. Yeah, you know what? Our water board determination of 375 that Chevron was claiming was their water board determination. Now, now it's 600 feet. Sure. And I'm like, you know, so again, you know, I, I don't mean to totally call out the railroad commission. I mean, you know, they got a lot of stuff in a lot of districts, a lot of people. 
right? But when I go back and look at this stuff and I look at the inconsistencies, the W3 in 1995 shows the waterboard was 580. Chevron somehow gets a waterboard letter that says it's 375, call it down the road commission and they did what they almost always do, which is deepen it. So then they, they deepened it to 600 feet. So <laughs> I'm a bit puzzled in the data sequence of things how so many different parties are working off a different data model. And then I would say in the Estes field as well with the original Gulf oil wells, which again, Chevron knew the Gulf oil designs, 16 and seven eighths or 16 inch by nine and five eighths, that there was no way in hell that they lifted cement on the original nine and five eighths cement job to cover the 16 inch casing shoot at 155 feet. There's no, there's no way. So these were never top circulated wells. They never got cement returns back on the nine and five eighths. Therefore, during the plug and abandonment, if you truly believed in the waterboard and you truly believed in recovery, you would have had to go in and cut and pull the seven inch long string, the production string, go back into your deep intermediate, shoot holes in the nine and five eighths and squeeze up to 16 inch. Did Chevron do that during the plug and abandonment or, or discussion of re-entry for the waterboard? No, hell no. So I, I gotta say this, that if you have an operator who suddenly said, hey, I'm all about protecting the groundwater and this is what we're gonna do and we're gonna do everything right by integrity, especially under ESG mode. But then I go back and I look at your history of, well, where was your plans to re-enter any of these 16 inch designs? Oh, wow, you know, those are plug and abandoned. That, that doesn't mean shit. I don't care if it's plug and abandoned in the 50s. If it's plug and abandoned wrong and you fail to provide isolation on the waterboard, then where's the state of Texas enforcing re-entry of these wells to, to provide adequate isolation and verification of long-term isolation of the water table? So both the Railroad Commission and the operators are complicit in saying one thing out of one side of their mouth that, oh yeah, we're here to set surface casing and protect the groundwater at all costs, and then turn around and say, well, but the old wells, ah, you know, it's okay. We don't have to do that. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't think like, I guess from my experience that I've seen, like I've never personally ever in my dealings witnessed uh, any amount of uh, complacency when it comes to groundwater contamination. I mean, if there's anything that like every regulatory body I've ever found is extremely weary of, it's always groundwater contamination. And I yeah, agree. So great point, Chris. So let's talk about the Estes 20 for just a second. So in December, when they have a blowout on the Estes 20, yeah. Five days, cuts, cuts here on the location dealing with the Estes 20 and the water flow, flowing a thousand, flowing a barrel a minute, 1,400 barrels a day, 5,000 barrels of water hauled off from the surface spill, not counting what actually went into the soil itself into the water table at 53 feet. Where was Chevron's plan for drilling monitoring wells and surface remediation of all the dead mesquites? I haven't seen one. And yet they tell me on the Estes 24 that after we get done after the monitoring period and super plug out, they're coming in to drill monitoring wells and do all the soil remediation and long-term operator cleanup program entry uh, for the state of Texas to maintain the Estes 24 location from the spill. But yet they didn't report to Ashley anything at all about the Estes 20 block in December. So what changed in five months internally within Chevron that said suddenly the Estes 24 gets higher quality cleanup and better plans and actions after the event where the, the Estes 20, which for all intents and purposes, they just wanted to shove it on the table and not talk about it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I get that. I, I guess like, you know, at the end of the day though, right. We're saying like, okay, you say we've got a 19.2 pound per gallon uh, gradient at 1400 feet. Right. So there's only one scenario that creates that, which is humans injecting water, right? Like you don't, have naturally occurring 19.2 pound per gallon gradients without human injection, right? So we have antigenic uh, 
pressure added to that formation. You've got you've got uh, pressure being added, of course, to the water flood zone, right? And somehow you're channeling up to 1,400 feet, and you've basically pressured that zone up. So, like within the realm of like responsible actions, it's like okay, so now you know within some context of nearby well injections, then you've got somewhere where it's communicating, right? And so, so one to me, like. I looked at the production on that offset field. It's basically nothing. Like it's almost dead. Like, why is the simplest answer not just to like go? Why why not just shut that field down? I mean, if you're saying like within the context of thirty barrels a day, like if you have a um, um, a true concern and if you have evidence that you know there's possible communication within zones, I wouldn't think that it would be. Uh, you know, the craziest thing to go to pits or to, uh, uh, you know, get the railroad commission to basically put an order on. I've seen it happen in Texas where uh, and a disposal well was creating casing leaks and producing zones, uh, or sorry, in, in production casing and offset wells and they shut it in. Um, so like within that possibility, it doesn't seem like that would be the the hardest thing to accomplish through the railroad commission or directly with pits, right? You would think so, but that's not the case that they've played so far. So what's really interesting is that first, I don't think Chevron told the, I don't, we're still not convinced that we've not seen any documentation on that suggests that the railroad commission was aware of the Estes 20 blowout in early December. The railroad commission was only on location for the plug and abandonment in January 9th through, January, through uh, February 1st. And they had hail trying to plug and abandon that, by the way, as well, because of the pressure regimes. So I'm not sure how much the Rare Commission honestly knew of the well control challenges of the Estes field before Pitts bought it April 1st. The second thing that was very interesting was the fact that during this event, the first time that anybody called it out as an underground blowout was when I was on Channel 7 News here in Midland with CBS. And I said it was an underground blowout. The next day, the railroad inspector at the location said, well, hey, I'm being told by District 8 office that we have an underground blowout. Nope, nobody said anything to us about an underground blowout. And I'm like, well, where, where do you think that 19.2 pound per gallon port pressure has suddenly showed up from? Like, I'm struggling to understand how you're not seeing the relevance of this was a man-made incident that is tied to some mechanism of other wells. Like, this isn't coming from this well. This well isn't the cause of the underground blowout of the zone at 1326 to 1495. Now, this well is an underground blowout itself because it's cross-flowing from 1396 to 1495 to 730 feet, to 560, to 166 feet, and leaking at surface. So we had enough horsepower and deliverability that we were able to actually get cross within this well. So this is an underground blowout well with the surface blowout at the initial start of it that is in an underground blowout field so like i've said to a lot of people this is this is a well of the resultant of what's happening happening in the field and is still happening and from a well control perspective the first the first goal of well control is to is to a find the source of the pressure and then if it's not killable in this situation it's not killable the 19.3 mud weight at 1,400 feet, won't, I won't have frag gradient to be able to support that. So the nice thing I have to do is I have to stop the water, the energy input. So a temporary restraining order should have been issued by the Railroad Commission without a lot of reasonability or a lot of argument that everything gets shut in. Everything gets stopped, everything gets shut in. 
and we start looking at the bigger picture problem of where is the energy source coming from. And then the second thing is, if I can't kill it, I've got to deplete it. I've got to put this well on production, basically. And this has happened in East Texas, where we were in a well that was at a 21 pound per gallon equivalent at 1,000 feet. And the only way to get a mud weight to kill it at the Austin Chalk at 3,800 feet was to drain off 450,000 barrels of it and over the course of eight months and bring the pore pressure back down to be able to thread a, a mud weight through the frac gradient pore pressure regime. So again, these conversations with the Railroad Commission are, are like, well, we weren't told anything like this. We, we don't know anything about it. So I'm, I'm truly puzzled. Are they, are they truly not aware of the magnitude of the events that are happening at the Estes field? Or are they just doing a damn ostrich roll or Sar Sergeant Schultz and saying, I know nothing? I might be a reference lost on you, but I still remember <laughs> Hogan's heroes. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I get all that. I think like, you know, my, my first like instinct is if I say, all right, I've got 115 PSI on this Estes well and it's in the annulus, then, you know, it's pretty hard for me to think if I've actually got communication with freshwater zone, because I'm sure it's an unconsolidated sand and it's got high permeability that you would be able to hold that pressure. Right. Like, and I think that like, also to your point where you say like, all right, like I've got these surface expressions, they include hydrocarbons. Well, to me, the fact that you're getting communication that's coming straight out of the well, right. Like within the preferential path of least resistance, the logical, uh, if, if there's a place for it to go outside of the surface casing laterally, then it's going to go there before it's going to go directly up to the surface. And so I would think that the fact that you have surface expressions actually would be encouraging to the fact that you probably don't have groundwater contamination at that point. And so I think like within the context of saying like, is there a problem here? Like uh, there's a problem, but like at the end of the day too, like, what are you worried about? You're worried about what, let's just keep it simple, the surface water as defined by the water board is, and you're worried about isolation below that, right? Like if I've got cross flow between a zone that's, you know, 3000 feet and 1500 feet, they're both unusable water and I've got it isolated with the cast iron plug and 20 foot of cement below above it, then is my concern, um, um, you know, that that's, a problem, I guess it's not right. Like, so, you know, in that sense too, like, where are we saying like definitively at this point that like, I've seen actual real flow, uh, you know, corroded casing, bad cement jobs, all of that is, um, you know, not ideal, but like, I would say that that doesn't necessarily show that you've got a an issue right and i think that within that context the burden becomes proving that uh uh you know if we're gonna say we're gonna point a finger we're gonna you know say there is groundwater contamination here right like uh like i guess i haven't seen anything within I, I would be way more concerned if i said i had flow to surface and i didn't have any pressure at all right Got it. So yeah. So I guess let's let's bring everybody up to speed then. So after after we got the seven inch pulled, we got the nine and five eighths log to see the corrosion on the nine and five eighths, determining that not only was there five sections of major corrosion, but there was also two holes in the casing. We had a cement plug in the well. At, Wait, sorry, 
where how do you determine that there's holes in that casing i mean corrosion so we along... the, we the yes we ran the isolation scanner and the isolation okay. scanner showed that showed the corrosion and the wall loss at 166 feet and also at uh 560 feet yeah, I just, I guess I would question the validity of that log. I mean, those are all relative numbers and, you know, you're setting a base like, okay, this is what wall thickness should be within this response from this log. And so, okay. you know, if you can't so we actually... did a mechanical, So we did a mechanical pressure test and it okay. failed the pressure test. So do you now believe if you have both log data and a pressure test, mechanical pressure test, that you believe you have, you have isolation? Uh, I mean... What what kind of pressure? Like okay, so you ran a plug and you ran a packer yep. and you tested. Ran a packer and and so on. You know, again, one of the weird things about this job was the fact that a lot of the stuff got put on Twitter literally as it was happening, like a live feed output, uh, which was a bit strange to see. But you can go back to Twitter and you can see the posts that list the the pressure setting depths and the and the, the fail criteria. We pressured up each time to five hundred. It bled off either two zero or bled off more than 10% or 15 minutes. Okay, wait. The first time we got a positive pressure test was 158 feet. The first answer was that we blamed the durometer of the rubber that it was too hard. And so we pulled the packer out of the hole. We ran a softer durometer. We went back in, tested again, and it still failed all the way up to 158. Okay, wait. So you said you pressured up to what pressure? 500 pounds. 500 pounds. So you pressured up mm -hmm. the surface casing to 500 PSI, and then it bled down to what over what timeline? It, it bled to zero or it bled down significantly more than 10% in 15 minutes. Chevron's pressure testing requirements is, is a pressure that holds better than 10% in less than 15 minutes. Okay. So, so we, we failed. So in the, in the only time we got a positive test is when we got to 158, we set both packers set at 158 plus or minus drillers tally. And we got a successful test on the annulus down the, the nine and five eighths by two and seven eighths tubing with the packer set at bottom. So you were testing the annulus setting a packer? Yes. And we had flow coming up the two and seven eighths tubing from a cement plug set at 572 feet. So either my cement plug had failed which again, I can't determine because I got a packer that I can't get a positive annulus pressure test on. And I've got flow coming up to two and seven eight. So is that coming out of the rustler? Or is that coming out of the, the failed cement plug at the bottom? Or is it coming out of, you know, the, the shallow center rows? Unlikely, right? Because here's the thing about the field. All of the aquifers require artificial lift. They have to have a submersible pump to be able to bring water to surface. So even if you made the argument that the Santa Rosa was exposed in 166 through a failed casing coupling. The fact is there's not a single well in the area in Santa Rosa that can't, that can live on its own. So yeah, if I've got I mean, a hole in the casing and I've got, and I've got flow, positive flow at surface, right? I've got shut-in pressure that varies between 28 PSI one day to 390 PSI the next day. And I can't explain why the pressures are cycling, right? There's something else going on in the zone. And, and I don't, Chris, I don't think there's anybody in the world that's got a Rosetta Stone to truly understand where flow is entering and exiting and how this thing is moving around in this well. And that's yeah, well, it's a one well data set. But what kills me about it is the Railroad Commission keeps their fucking head in the sand and says, oh, I don't know about this underground flow. What are you talking about? There's a well control problem out here. I'm like, how in the hell do you not see the fact that there's a well control problem? There's not a zone out here that artificially can lift it, that can lift itself without artificial lift. 
How in the hell are you not seeing this? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that I guess so within, you know, what we've the data you've given me, though, I still would say like, all right, you know, you're right. Like uh, if if there's anything that's not connected to uh, some sort of like, you know, a mountainous area where you have, uh, you know, added pressure from a column, you know, offsetting and like, uh, you know, but a flat land like this, I would never expect uh you know, a fresh water zone to flow to surface, right? Like that wouldn't make sense. So that's uh, fair and expected, I guess. But like, um, so then, then I would say like, okay, so when that context, so 115 PSI on the annulus, you have no flow, right? Until you shot the 1400 foot zone. So within that context, I would just have to say like the data to me supports the fact that you probably don't have groundwater contamination. I mean, if you didn't have volume and you built pressure, then most likely I would say on the Estes zone, you didn't actually have contamination. Now, like when- So, you I, your... so I'll push back on the argument of the YouTube and drillers method, right? So if I look at the notion that I have two sides of the YouTube and I've got 700 pounds and a 10 pound per gallon column of fluid on the seven inch, right? That means that if I had not had a pressure relief on my annulus, I should have had 700 pounds shut in on the 958 side of the YouTube with the same column of fluid, right? Wait, because what? the bottle And because the bottle is broken on the annulus, because I've got pressure relief valves whether through the casing, whether through the rustler, whether through to the washed out zone at 730 feet, I've got multiple exit paths on the annulus that are occurring simultaneously that are taking away that 700 pound differential. I won't necessarily see that on a static column on the seven inch tubing side. So my, my casing pressure, drill pipe pressure is not gonna be balanced because of the fact that I've got water leaking off on the annulus side. Does that make sense? No, you, I mean, you shouldn't, you're hydrostatic, the whole system's full of water. I mean, so you shouldn't, you should be balanced. I mean, it's, it's, it would be if you, you know, introduced some sort of salt water, you know, brine water into the equation by pumping it yourself, it would be indeterminable the, you know, so i disagree i don't see it if you had if you had two columns of fluid in a youtube and i got one side flowing then i'm going to see the exact same pressure response on the other side of the youtube the drill pipe pressure the seven inch casing side aka my drill pipe is showing me a 700 pound pressure reading that is that is showing a static condition at the zone of where the fluid is coming out at 1475 my nine and five eighths by seven inch annulus is showing me the fact that I've got a well that's in dynamic condition. I've got a static gauge and I've got a dynamic gauge. The dynamic gauge is telling me I've got 115 PSI at surface, 150 PSI at surface, whatever the day's pressure was. Uh, and my seven inch side is a static pressure gauge. Yeah, I mean, it just, it tells you you've got isolation between the two, right? I don't agree. I, I, I think that's a, that's a, point we can agree to disagree on I, I think from the well control side the differential between your static gauge on the seven inch casing side versus the annulus is, is pretty clear but you're saying that's because of dynamic pressure because of the frac gradient or the leak off pressure wherever you were injecting into in the annulus 730 feet 560 feet 166 feet 
uh, yeah, one, but this one point is leaving a surface. This is a high perm sand. We're not, uh, you know, frat gradient wouldn't be applicable on a, a sand at that depth, right? Like with that permeability, um, you wouldn't use the frat gradient there. Uh, you would just look at it as basically an infinite pressure sink if there's any communication at all. I mean, if you've got a, a eighth of an inch hole, then, you know, you would never know. It would, it would bleed off immediately. Um, I'm pretty confident that would be true. So, uh, you know, and within the context of what you were saying earlier, I mean, you said if you wanted to lift cement to surface, you would never be able to do it from in this consolidated, unconsolidated sand body. I, I assume your implication was that it didn't have the formation integrity to support the column, hydrostatic column, which I wouldn't necessarily agree with either. But, um, you know, within that context, like, uh, I think that I don't know the exact specific geology of this area, but if it's got fresh water and if it's shallow and it's a sandstone, then the most likely scenario is that uh, you would not be able to support any pressure at all. I mean, you you could probably pump 20 barrels a minute, and not actually break it down and frack it. I mean, would be my guess just because you don't have any, you know, the perm's too high. You don't, I mean, when you pump, conventional frack jobs on high perm zones there's a reason why you have to add viscosity because it doesn't it won't break if you don't do that right because it just takes it it just it's a permeable sink it takes the water yeah no and look it it, it, it may not have exceeded frack gradient in the sense of the, the the pressure gradient but whatever is the relief whether it's the injectivity or whether it's frack gradient the point of it is is that there is a there is a pressure relief valve that is occurring on that annulus in multiple zones is allowing for us to not see a balanced YouTube at surface. In theory, the salado, which is the salt anhydride sequence below the rustler and above the tansil, theoretically has zero perm, right? It's a salt anhydride sequence. It was laid down at a series of evaporite beds and permium. That there is nothing to flow in and out of the uh, salado. So well, if it the has zero perm, stuff. then you couldn't have contaminated it, right? Like, well, that's so that's what's got me puzzled about the, the dissolution model that Chevron subsurface is leaning with. It's also what causes the Wink sink up in uh, Winkler County. It, it, the issue is that if you have enough water to go by low enough salinity to dissolve out the halite and be able to reach full, full salt saturation, you had to move a hell of a lot of water. I mean, you're not talking like you're not talking 10,000 barrels of water to solution mine out between wells. You're talking millions of barrels of water. So I'm a bit puzzled then if, if the dissolution model requires such a large volume of water salinity difference to, to mine out laterally to communicate between well bores, how long has this been going on? Th this isn't a 2003 forwards phenomenon. I, you know, wink sink, wink sinks, was collapsed in 1980. It was drilled in 1923 or 24, the wing sink number two, collapsed in 80, right? It's 500 feet wide now, uh, still flowing water. But, uh, you know, it took a lot of years for the wing sink model to eventually cause the subsurface mining and collapse. So I'm a bit puzzled as to how the dissolution model has been in play, if that's the case. I'm still leaning with the top, it's still the tansil. Uh, the tansel has some natural perm, bugular porosity, some calcite deposits to plug it up, but it's got a, 
is at least got a legitimacy of having fluid transfer. And, and again, three and a half barrels a minute was not a trivial rate of water coming back at us when we shut it in on that, on that first time we shot holes in it. Um, we were all kind of shocked to see the three and a half barrel a minute flow rate come back at us. So um, I'm a bit puzzled still how they've come up with the dissolution model as their most likely scenario for the cross flow. But point being, it didn't exist in 1995. It sure as hell didn't exist in 1955. Otherwise, Gulf Oil would have their ass handed to them when they were drilling it. Uh, and they didn't. So I'm, I'm a bit puzzled as to what has caused it. But then in the bigger grand scale of things is that while that is the interesting technical inquiry, the, the bigger challenge is why is Chevron and the Railroad Commission not working towards finding the causation energy source and removal of isolation for even other operators, right? I mean, you know, okay, Pitts bought a dock, right? They didn't do their due diligence. Maybe they should have done a better job on their due diligence on what they were buying. But the bottom line is they didn't buy it out of bad faith to say that Chevron handed them an underground blowout that they were aware of, right? Mm -hmm. This obviously was here before Pitts bought the field. Like this didn't suddenly happen in the last 90 days since Pitts acquired the Estes field. And the other operators who have drilled wells out here in the early 2000s didn't report any issues either. So I'm kind of puzzled as to where, how, and when did this come about, but then how is the Railroad Commission playing ignorant on, well, we're not aware of any well control problem. We had a blowout on the Estes 20 in January, you know, in December, January, and you got another one on the 24, six months later. Like, does it going to take a third or a fourth blowout on the ranch to finally get them to acknowledge the fact there's a field-wide problem? Yeah, I guess, like, but within what their, you know, charge duty is in this case, it's, uh, you know, they're here, they're trying to protect groundwater. If you've got cross-flow water cross-flowing into a different water zone, I mean, I'm going to say it's, like, not ideal, but, like, we're not talking about some, like, massive problem in that instance like if i told you that there's zones in south texas that cross flow at fifteen thousand feet 19,000 feet and you set one plug above them both and they're sitting there cross flowing to this day until the pressure equalizes and then it doesn't do anything right like it's just it's equalized it's done and it's there forever i mean what is the concern is like from the perspective of humans and our ability to uh safely inhabit that area like um probably pretty minimal right hey hey chris bill let me inject because my kind of question dumbing it you know i used to always tell my engineering partners at kane anderson dummy it down for the finance guy chris i'm taking your point is we got cross flow going down but at least the groundwater seems to be protected by surface pipe. Um, that's kind of your take. So what's the problem? So Chris, what I'd like to hear from you on that front, and then I got a follow up for Bill is, what's your confidence interval that um, from all you've heard today, and I know you don't have perfect information, but what's your confidence interval that the groundwater won't get contaminated? Is this you know, 100% for sure, Ashley's fine, go, you know, you'll eat steak from the cattle that's drinking this water, or do we do we have some sort of chances here that groundwater gets contaminated? What does your gut kind of tell you? I mean, I, it seems like there's probably uh, um, 
there's a risk of there being an issue, uh, you know, from the discovery that I've seen and the data I've got, I can't necessarily say like, oh yeah, like that's a real, real problem. Um, you know, I remember when MEMP was selling a package and they had a, you know, a, a, a water contamination and I read the well reports cause we were looking at buying it. And, um, you know, like I remember thinking like, oh shit, as I was flipping through the well reports and looking at the data, I was like, yeah, like you got a real problem. Like that was a clear cut case of like, yes, they contaminated the groundwater. They went out, they drilled a bunch of offset wells. They found salt in the surface zone and, you know, they have all these monitor wells. They had to pull all the water out, et cetera. Right. Like, and I, you know, the progression of that in the data to me was like, that was a clear cut case. And this, uh, I mean, I would say it's gray. I wouldn't necessarily say like that you don't have it. Uh, I would personally, as a landowner, you know, if I was looking through this, I would say, yeah, of course there's issues of concern if, if you don't think that the wells were plugged properly. Um, but I think it's probably uh, not, uh, uh, without having something that necessarily says like, yes, uh, you know, something clear cut that you've got contamination, I would be worried about like, okay, like, why don't we figure out with the four other wells that are on my land, what the status is and let's go in and, you know, check the the plugs on those wells. And, and, you know, if you're only talking about like a four or 500 foot zone, I mean, you could probably drill and test that freshwater for $30,000 maybe. I mean, maybe. So, you know, would it be a huge ask? Would it be so cost prohibitive that, um, that nobody would be willing to come in and drill one or two test wells to actually check? I don't, I don't think so. I mean, and, you know, I don't disagree with the idea that like, you know, Chevron has done everything the way I would do it necessarily. Um, but I also would find it really tough to believe that they would be knowingly, intentionally, uh, you know, risking groundwater contamination and the liability that that would create uh, seems kind of far-fetched to me. It's, it would be completely counter to everything and every experience and I've, I've had as, you know, being a non-op in their wells or having friends that work there and the conversations and, and they're, you know, um, if anything, it's like they operate in an inefficient way because they do their belts and suspenders on everything they do. So, you know, it's hard for me to like, just say like, okay, there would be a real risk that they have contaminated groundwater. It's ongoing. I mean, I think that's the biggest thing too. Like, it's ongoing, therefore it's getting worse every day. And they're just gonna try to like walk their hands and walk walk away. I mean, because, you know, taking something that's manageable and controllable right now and then making a real issue out of it um, and burying their head in the sands would just, I, I, I would, I can't, I can't cross that without like hard actual real data. Like that's, that's just a bridge too far for me for Chevron that like they would do that to be honest. So. Well, Chris, let's, let's, let's get into the details then. So the S is 20 blows out December 10th, noticed by the, the ranch foreman 4am on his way to work cattle. 
calls and notifies the emergency response number that the well is flowing, right? We believe Marty is the one who found the Estes 20 flowing across the road. Chevron does not notify Ashley. Chevron does not notify the Railroad Commission according to their own monitoring reports. There is no mention of the Railroad Commission in any of the discussion components of what was happening. And ICS was stood up. They did come out and have emergency response. They did clean it up. There was no groundwater remediation. Let, let's assume the well just flowed for the five days of reporting. Marty truly caught it on the 10th of, of December. And let's assume by the 15th, they had it captain and secured, right? Yeah. In that five days of 1,400 barrels, that means the well would have flowed about 8,000 barrels, give or take a bit. Figured the back truck report says something like 5,000 barrels of water collected off the ground. So let's say reasonably there's 3,000 barrels that were spilled at surface. There's a line of dead mesquite six months later. That's very clearly indicated on the ranch road as you come in and see past the Estes 20 location. Where's the groundwater monitoring wells for the 3,000 barrels they spilled at surface? Where's the site remediation plan for the 3,000 barrels and restoration of the mesquites that they put? Right, six months later, I haven't seen a plan. There's still nothing in documentation. Estes 24, we're told we're supposed to get a four or five monitoring well can't drill campaign drilled around the Estes 24 to determine the aerial extent of the cross flow subsurface into the surface aquifer uh, and also into the rustler. And then there's a huge soil pulling up all the cliche disposal for all the messes that they made on the SS24 work, you know, uh, remediation and plugging abandonment operation. And, 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 and there were a lot of spills. Like we had lines blow, we had, we had failed leaks, there was no mud mats, et cetera, et cetera. So they got a lot of dirt work to do around the location as well. Again, not out of the atypical component of our business, but again, there has to be a formal plan submitted to what that looks like and how that's done. Still haven't seen it. Now, I, I, I agree with you. Look, I worked at Chevron. I've worked for the business units. I, I believe a lot of what they say is what they truly enact and what they do. And I got to say, it's really hard to look at this scenario and say, is this really Chevron? Like, you know, this, this is not the Chevron we all deal with on a regular day and basis. But remember, this business unit is the environmental management company that doesn't have to follow the SOPs of Chevron corporate DNC. The MCBU business unit out of Midland has, has to follow the corporate guidance. I work for Deepwater Gulf, Mexico. I've worked for North Sea Aberdeen. The, the, we have global SOPs that have to be followed and executed according to global, global standards. EMC doesn't have to follow Chevron corporate guidance. It's kind of like BPX and BP. It's kind of like XTO and Exxon. X, XTO can never be incorporated in Exxon because XTO can never meet Exxon's corporate guidance on their well designs and their documentations and how they do what they do. So. EMC is given somewhat of a, a, a leniency pass here on having to follow the strict Chevron DNC corporate SOPs. I, I, I think if you look at it from outside Chevron, you say EMC is the same thing as MCBU, but they're not. They're two totally different business units. One works for the real estate company. One works for the drilling and completions groups. They're, it's really hard to, to grasp that this circumstance is because of EMC, not because of the way Chevron DNC works. And that's what's got me a bit puzzled is that it is hard to grasp that Chevron would act so differently than their other counterparts. But the data that we have in front of us and their action plans and what they've submitted isn't following Chevron corporate guidance. So, again, there's a lot of very strange things about this. The fact that 
like I said earlier, I, I was a bit ignorant in thinking that Chevron was just discovering that this is the first time this field had cross flowed and this, this field had surface expressions. Well, no, it's not, they, the engineers and the people that were involved were just out on the Estes 20 five months previously. Like the Estes 101 that's just right behind the Estes 20 also was in well control and ironically couldn't get to the work over on that well because the road was flooded out from the Estes 20 blowout. So it's not like it's not like Chevron internally didn't know this field was a disaster. Now, I, I don't know how how you quantify that from their internal documentation without a massive amount of litigation and discovery. But there's a part of this that, that really stinks when you start to look at it and say, well, if you knew you had a dog, you sold off the liability and whoops, this one came back. Uh, well, then why didn't you just stuck the pits? Why don't you just say to them, well, hey, you sold it. You took the liability of our old wells. This is your problem. Why would you take ownership of it? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess like, and I, I don't disagree with you on that. I mean, it seems to me like the easiest thing to do because this field is I mean, I don't remember the exact number of the production, but when I looked at it, it's basically almost dead anyways. Like I, I just, it, if I were in Pitts' shoes and if I thought I was, you know, creating this issue by my injection, you know, uh, you'd probably shut that injection off in that field. And, you know, I'd probably go back to Chevron and be like, whatever, I paid you for this field. I want my money back. It's probably only, $3 million or $4 million. I don't know. It's probably minimal amount of money. Um, and frankly, if you shut the injection off, you would probably, um, whether there was other plugging issues, whether there was future groundwater contamination issues that could occur, you would just never, uh, you would never get there because you wouldn't be adding pressure into the reservoir with the injection. And yeah, I, I think we're in agreement that the first step is going to be to have to get somebody off center, whether it's Chevron, Pitts, or Railroad Commission, somebody to shut it in the injections and say, does that have any effect on dissipating the pressure and the energy? The, se the second thing is, and I, and I don't disagree with you on this, Chris, is that from Ashley's point of view, it's about protecting from 600 feet to surface, right? If you want to leave it an underground blowout and a complete clusterfuck, that, that, that's fine. Be my guest, right? It's not technically in her interest as long as it doesn't contaminate above the Salado into the Rustler. She doesn't really give a damn about the subsurface condition. It's not great, right? Because it does lead to risk potentially of other wells. But if it is truly contained and the, the well designs are isolated, you could say, okay. But the problem is when you go look at the old Gulf Oil 16 inch casing designs being set at 155 and nine and five eighths, that's not isolated across 1400 feet to, to 155. If that pressure field is communicating through, the, through that interval near the, the 16 inch designs, you've got the risk of cross flow from the 1475 interval all the way up to 155 feet. Yeah, but I think we agree that that 1400 interval is the pressure that's in that zone is due to uh, cross flow from a deeper zone and in injection, right? I wouldn't disagree. It, it's, it's hard to imagine anybody, nobody legally is permitted to dispose of water at the Tansel unit. So if, if somebody is injecting in the Tansel, they're truly in violation of the railroad commission. So the permitted wells that are injecting are injecting into the San Andres or they're injecting into the Devonian or they're you know, injecting into other, other deeper reservoirs. Uh, my personal gut feeling is that one, one or more of these injectors has got leaking annular isolation and is allowing cross flow to occur. But again, until you re-enter the injector, 
factors, you can't prove that cross flow model, right? And then, and then the other thing is that, which, which is legitimate, that Chevron started water injection in the field in the 60s. These wells didn't have the greatest casing designs, cement isolations. Was there a possibility that some of these wells during the water injection for the water flooding could have caused a cross flow to occur from the overpressurizing of the San Andres in the water flood? I mean, they, they produced about a million and a half barrels of oil from the 1960s onwards. They injected four and a half million barrels of water. That, yeah. that, over, that over volume injection versus what you took out on a daily basis over the course of 50 years has added up to a hell of a lot of water. So is, is the San Andres water flood cross-flowing into the shallower intervals? That, that may be the circumstance. All right, I'm not ruling that out either, but I, I, I definitely agree with you that the, the, the natural state of what occurred between 1326 and 1495 did not exist in 1955. It did not exist in 1995. Right, yeah. So either you've got a rogue injection well somewhere out there. Um, and again, I mean, if you've got pressure like that, I would assume if it's a continuous sand body and it's not localized at 1400 feet, then you would assume that that pressure would dissipate over that aerial extent over a long enough timeline um you know so uh, uh it's pretty uh weird then that you could have that volume at that depth with that pressure um in a localized area uh because it's not like it got shut off 10 years ago and you still have that pressure i mean that dissipates over that timeline so uh you know I think that's like an interesting question, right? Like what would be, uh, you know, I assume, like you said, it's like there's a commercial disposal well uh, offset, but it has to be injecting somewhere deeper, uh, you know. It's a Devonian. Yeah, but it's, you know, is it is it plausible to me to think like, okay, like when that zone wouldn't take the volume that they wanted, they set the packer higher shot to, you know, sand that they weren't supposed to and now they're injecting into that i don't i don't think that's an unfeasible scenario to me like uh uh you know like that would be an interesting question i think i think if i were looking at it from that perspective and you looked at where is their active injection happening in this field and what is the wellbore design on those wells right like okay i would i would contend that as cement gets closer to surface it gets in worse shape so it would be hard to inject it a thousand psi surface expect it to go down to the zone that you know you hypothetically thought you were injecting into and then it circulate up and then have some kind of containment above that so that you don't have annular pressure at surface to then make it inject into the 1400 foot zone would be really unlikely to me so uh, within that, I mean, if you had an extra string of casing in it, maybe that becomes possible if you had some kind of intermediate, but I would guess again that that's probably less likely also. So, I mean, I, I just feel like then you're saying I've only really got a couple possibilities, uh, but either one of them probably lends itself to there's an injection well going on out there that uh, is in the immediate area that somebody's injecting in a zone they shouldn't be. And like, you know, is that going to cause issues? Uh, would that create issues in terms of what the uh, injection or what the plugging and abandoned procedures were, of course, because that's, you know, how um, 
the railroad commission would define that, right? Like if they were going to say like, there is an active injection injection zone at 1400 feet, therefore you need to cover it up with cement whenever you plug these wells. And so I would assume that because there's nobody supposed to be injecting into that zone, then you wouldn't have that procedure in your plugging. And so, you know, what issues does that create if somebody's breaking that rule would be a completely you know different conversation than the one we're having and and if that's the case then whoever that person is should be in a lot of trouble i mean that's that would be serious stuff um to yeah I, I agreed and, and i would say that you know i think we've done a pretty deep dive on the potential scenarios of it's either water injection or water flooding cross flow the, the problem comes down now to the railroad commission enforcing a temporary restraining order or a cease and desist. Um, so in the job I did in 2011 in East Texas, the operator had a well that was drilled in 93. The uh, water disposal well about five miles away had injected 86 million, million barrels of produced water. And this well we were on had cross flowed from 3,600 feet, 3,800 feet. Uh, to a thousand feet, uh, about 10 million barrels of crossflow based on the reservoir model. And the railroad commission at the time in that district pretty much said it's the operator's fault for not designing the well in 1993 before the water disposal well came on for failure to have adequate isolation for potential risk of um, the Austin Chalk being exposed for water disposal. Well, the engineers that designed the well would have lifted a cement column or done a DV job to have got isolation on there had they known that was going to be a future problem, but that was never the case. They, they drilled it with an eight, six water-based mud and, you know, again, drilled the Travis Peak and Cotton Valley zones. It's like it, there was never a risk at the time in 93 when the well was originally drilled. And the Railroad Commission turned around and blamed the operator for lack of angular isolation causing the cross flow. Uh, and, and I have to say the Railroad Commission's modus operandi when it comes to water disposal problems is not to blame the water disposal company. Their first thing is they usually typically go out and they blame the operator for failure to design or or, or anticipate future future problems in a plug and abandonment well. Like the zone at fourteen ninety five should never have been and is not a authorized water disposal zone. So I don't see how the Gulf Oil guys, even if they had done their job right, they wouldn't have planned for isolation had they known it was going to be a future risk. They would have done that, but again i mean I, I would disagree with that i mean i think the impetus is on the disposal zone uh operator to you know inject water into it, something that's not I, I mean in oklahoma i don't remember what it is in texas but it's you know there's a mile radius you have to notify anybody if you're going to inject in a zone and you have to get approval basically so because i mean the the case law of course or you know the impetus of all oil and gas law is that you know, it's it's there to protect mineral production. It's there to you know protect the producers of the the mineral estate. And so, you know, within that context, if it's just simply as as simple as creating casing leaks and producing wells that are offset to that disposal injection well, then uh, I guess I've found that they generally don't allow you to do that. Um, so I don't know. I guess I would just disagree a little bit on that. I mean, I, I think that the impetus is on the disposal well, and 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 see, I don't see I don't see any of the disposal well companies out here actually going to jump in, do a pull their completion log, and evaluate their annulus or the casing. 
none of them are going to do that. They're, they're going to turn and say, if, if for anything, I'm going to sell it off and transfer the liability somewhere else, or, or I'm going to uh, shut my operations down and uh, move on to the next location. Like, it, well, they wouldn't permit you, I guess is my point. Like if you tried to permit injecting at a 1400 foot sand and you had a bunch of wells all around you that, you know, didn't have cement up to that 1400 foot sand, then, you know, within a mile radius, yeah, so they, they know you're just going to Swiss cheese that production casing. So they're going to yeah, defend yeah. the operator just out of even if it's just selfish motivations for for you know uh getting their their severance tax paid i mean so i just wish the railroad commission would take an active role in helping to determine what's the cause of the energy source and helping helping to identify it instead of legaling up and they've turned this into a bit of a goat roping three-ring circus uh regarding the scenario and, and i don't agree with the ostrich head in the sand approach the, the data suggests that this is artificial at 1475. This wasn't here 25 years ago. And there is a field-wide problem. Yeah. And well, I'm the I'm the last guy that should be opining on on this, just being the finance guy, but just gut reaction from stuff at Kane looking at the different regulatory regimes. Oklahoma seemed to be a lot more thoughtful, considerate, protective of implementing wastewater disposal i mean they would make you shoot 3d seismic to make sure there was no big fault through there and and texas did have a more kind of laissez-faire whatever type uh mindset to it but um maybe what let's let's do here kind of to close on um you know listening to your stuff kind of simplifying it down i'll put this scenario out here and see see if we agree but it, it sounds like potentially if we stopped injecting water here pits uh or otherwise potentially the the problem dissipates potentially the groundwater uh is safe and I'll, I'll put a little asterisk next to that because, Chris, I think you'd say, hey, there could be other problems here that I don't know about or the like. But, you know, if that's if that's the solution which uh, protects the groundwater, I mean, I think you're right, Chris. What did Pitts pay for this? Two, three, four million bucks? Um, that doesn't sound that expensive to make the, the problem go away, but I'll leave it there and give each one of you guys the last word. You go first, Bill. How about that? No, that's fine. Um, I, I think it's an unfortunate scenario that Steve Pitts bought a lame duck of a field from Chevron who didn't didn't really publicly disclose all of the challenges of the Estes field in the documentation of all the stuff that he bought. Now, you could blame him for his team for failure to do due diligence and really, you know, truly risk assess the, the stuff that they were buying at the price they were getting at. Um, but again, you know, this notion that the big boys sell off stuff to the smaller guys and that, you know, let's say Pitts goes into bankruptcy because the next one comes to surface and creates Lake Ashley, right? And it's unremediable and it's a uh, constant surface flow to the San Andres to surface. She ends up with a wink sink and a cordoned off chain link fence around her property and groundwater now permanently fucked. Like... Pitts is out of Pitts is in bankruptcy through litigation. Now what? I, I, this is the problem in the state of Texas. This is the problem with the 
the whole model of selling off the liability. Had this been the Gulf of Mexico where BLM federal land, it would have rolled back to the previous operator. So Chevron would have been on the hook for it in the scenario. To me, Pitts didn't cause these problems in the last 90 days. No matter how bad their due diligence was, Steve Pitts and his team did not come out here and willingly cause an underground blowout or do or do any intervention. They haven't done a single well intervention. I mean, they changed a couple of casing valves. They've, they've installed some gauges and done some basic stuff on their pump jacks, but like they haven't done any in-well work. So everything that was here was already here based on what Gulf Oil, a.k.a. Chevron, had turned over to Pitts uh, over the last couple of years. And I, I think that the Estes 20 situation that came up and we found out this week that there was a blowout here six months ago. I, I really think that, that Chevron had an impetus to just to, to, to fire sale this to somebody who was willing to take the liability. And the problem is that since the Estes 24 blew out 90 days before, after they got acquisition and before the one year, you know, conditions in the clause of the lease uh, term execute in terms of long-term liability, I think Pitts has got a great case to say to Chevron, tough shit. You know, the, the 20 problem was yours. The 24 is yours. It's a plug and a band well that's come back to life. And I'm scared to death to see when what happens when we unearth the five, the eight, and the uh, seven, the original Estes Wells with the 16-inch casing designs that don't have nine and five eights uh, isolated. And if we find out that those are the causation, that's your direct link right there to 155 feet into the Santa Rosa water table. So Chevron mishandled this event from the start in terms of how they did the 20, not notifying Ashley, no site remediation on the 20, 24 ends up having surface expressions. They lost a fair about getting out here to get anything sorted out. They send the crew out with an excavator. They don't, they unearth the well. They're saying, oh, we'll come back Monday with a wellhead crew and we'll sort it out. No, you, you've got a leaking well that's going straight into the groundwater. You're going to take care of it now. Uh, Things like that that really screwed up. And of course, then it just did nothing but piss Ashley off to the nth level degree, which if I was in her shoes, I, <laughs> I think I would have been a lot worse to deal with than she has. Uh, but in the same token, then they improved. Like they got the situation under control. We were getting regular op-up states. They were working forwards in terms of things. And then it changed all of a sudden on July 6th when we saw the supercharged zone at 1475 and those holes, everything changed. And the last couple of weeks has gotten quiet. People have disappeared. There's no 10 a.m. ops calls. Uh, the discussion points have gotten talks to lawyers. Like it, it is, it has all changed since July 6th. And having to cement, we've already cemented back the case and shoe three times and drilled it out three times. And something's not right. We've got holes in the 9058's casing. We can't pass a pressure integrity test on the 9058's casing. We still got flow on the 9058's casing side. I, I keep saying to people that, you know, the definition of insanity is repeating the same behavior and expecting a different outcome. If, if this cement plug does not hold over the next three weeks and we see a pressure increase on this well or flow potential out of this well, look, there's no way in hell the water aquifer out here to flow on its own. So that means you're connected to something that's got pressure that's communicating into the water table, like, or you've got a fourth failed cement plug. Like, at what point in this do you say you got to come up with a different approach and, and status on this? And I, to be honest, of all well-controlled jobs and underground blowouts, coming out here thinking that this was just a one-zone flow up the annulus looking like an overflowing toilet when we cut back to 958 by 7-inch, this has turned into a remarkably technically complex 
problem, aerial extent, number of wells, potential other scenarios speeding into it that I, I had to say, this is, this is a rare duck in my, in my book of hundreds of well control events. This, this is a rare duck to see something this truly technically complex out here. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a, um, there's definitely a lot of problems. I just, it seems like even if I was just going to be selfish from the perspective of Chevron, it's, uh, it's what you said. It's, you can't have that pressure there without injection happening in it somewhere near proximity, most likely probably one of the pits wells, or, uh, you know, I don't know the area well enough to say that there's some rogue injection well nearby that's injecting into this zone that shouldn't be, um, you know, sometimes water floods, especially old ones, uh, they're trying to get rid of water as they're injecting, right? Like they're producing at a 10th of a percent oil cut and they just want to take the, the produced water instead of recycling it and stick it into a different zone. And, and, you know, maybe that is happening and it shouldn't be, um, but within all that context, um, I would, highly suspect um, without, again, knowing the specifics, but if you shut the injection down on this pits field that, uh, that it would all go away. And, um, you know, as these things dissipate over time and, you know, if, if you just wanted to say like, I just want to like um, walk away from this liability and not, you know, actually fix the, you know, well bores that maybe were plugged improperly that, if you just stop the injection, then there wouldn't be any more issues because everything would balance out, equalize, and you'd have, you know, bad plugged wells that would sit there for a long time and nobody would probably, um, nobody would have any problems, I would guess. And, and, and again, like it's, you know, within a static environment, um, I would expect without actual humans adding pressure and injection uh, that you would expect that to then cross flow up into the surface zone, even if the plugging job had been done improperly, just because the water gradient is going to be the water gradient, the heavy water, the salt water stays at the bottom and the fresh water, the light water stays at the top. Um, and that's how we wound up in the situation we are where we have groundwater, right? That's why there's fresh water at the surface and that's why there's salt water below it. Um, and so, I don't know, it just seems like within, you know, I'm just, I would be surprised from Chevron's perspective, I'd say like, or if, even if I was pits, like if I was pits and I said, look, this thing's a mess, like Chevron, give me my money back. And, uh, you know, then Chevron shuts the wells and plugs them out and, and the whole drama is kind of over, it seems like. Um, but, you know. Uh, I think that would be a very reasonable conclusion if we could get to that level of conversation without, without the attorneys. Because yeah. I think ultimately at the end of the day, somebody's going to have to re-enter these old well bores. Pitts is going to argue that they just took it over 90 days ago and that this was in the ground since, you know, the nineties or earlier sixties, that it's not their responsibility to re-enter these old wells to, to rectify Chevron's old history. And I think that's a reasonable argument to be had, but again, you know, it comes down to the clauses in the contract and who wrote what and what indemnity do they have on the old liabilities, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that gets me is that at the end of the day, regardless of all the legal bullshit on the other end the fact is the wells need plugged they need confirmed that they're isolated and validated and verified with logs and with physical data and pressure test data to show the fact that they're properly isolated for the next 100 years you know realistically are we going to solve are we going to solve the next next step change in plug and abandonment on this field to be able to secure these wells for a thousand years no 
you know, Ash is 35 years old. I told her, I said, I would hope by the time you're an old lady at 85, you know, that, that you will have had closure on all the Estes Field problems. I hope. Well, right. 50 years from now, I hope for her sake, she's got emotional closure on what's happened out here on this ranch. The reality is that maybe she gets closure over the next five or 10 years, but the hard reality is that I hate to say this, and I've said this to her in realistic expectations, there isn't going to be an easy answer. This is going to be a long litigation case. This is going to be a pissing match in court over jurisdiction and arguments and technical, you know, challenges around certain things, right? There's going to be the battle between Chevron and Pitts involved at the same time. There's going to be other operators who are going to step in and sue Chevron for screwing up their wells because they're going to have to plug and abandon early. Like the circumstance out the ranch that could be, Let's just find the problem. Let's stop the energy source. Let's find a way to make sure the groundwater is isolated and close this chapter would be the most reasonable course of action. But that's not what's going to happen. Well, and I appreciate, Bill, you coming on and sharing all this. And Chris, I appreciate you a lot because I don't have the engineering chops to be able to have had as fruitful a discussion as you two guys do. And I may be alone on my soapbox here, but I truly believe that if we as an industry want to be around and not get run out of business by the other side, we've got to police ourselves and we've got to do the right thing. Because I truly believe in my heart of hearts and just conversations I'm having, and this is anecdotal and you know, you two guys may disagree with me on this, but at the end of the day, I think the reason the environmentalists hate us so much is not because we're burning hydrocarbons and CO2s being admitted. I think in their in their heart of hearts, they'll admit, yeah, we drive SUVs too, it's pretty cool, and we get our lifespan doubles when we start using hydrocarbons over shit and wood burning furnaces <laughs> to power our lives. I think they truly hate us because they don't think they can trust us. Um, and I know we hate them because they don't think we don't think we can trust them and you know how do you break that i think you break that by situations like this a problem happens if the industry can step up and fix it and uh, and kind of put it put it behind us and show that we'll be responsible operators that's at least a little step towards that direction so no, re- no really appreciate both of you guys start, coming just, on yeah hey, just to throw in one thing on that you know if you look at the feedback you got after ashley's presentation by the people in the oil and gas industry that was really negative commentary. There were some really shitty comments made about her, uh, about the ranch, about the scenario that like, oh, here's just somebody bitching about they want more benefit, et cetera, et cetera. Like the people in the oil and gas industry that don't grasp the fact that, that she is a landowner who is acceptable of having oil and gas on her property, but protect the, do, the, do the right thing by protecting the groundwater and not making a mess, notifying her of the issues, right? That's not a big ask as a landowner. She's not anti-oil and gas. I I, got to say, you know, looking at the scenario in the industry of the comments on Twitter and LinkedIn regarding people that push back to the oil and gas argument, it's like all of a sudden you're a screaming leftist environmentalist who wants to screw oil and gas over. Christ almighty, I've worked 21 years in this business. Like I've seen the skeletons in the closet from the emergency response side. I'm not anti-oil and gas, but I got to say, when you're looking at the landowner's perspective on this, you got to realize she got handed a really crappy set of cards. Well, and, and Bill, saying, and Bill, it's I, her fault. Yeah, no, Bill, it's it's interesting because I, I agree with you. There was feedback that was definitely negative, and it was definitely very loud. 
and and such. But at the end of the day, I got a lot of private messages and texts from a lot of folks in the industry saying that was a good story to tell because we just have we meaning we the industry we've got to step up and be responsible and show that we can be be appropriate actors because at the end of the day, if not, we'll get run out of business. We're not going to stop. Right. We're not going to stop oil consumption. I mean, Leonardo's going to fly around on his jet. Now Gore's going to have his forty thousand square foot house. So we're not going to get rid of consumption. It's just a question of whether we push it all, all the supply to Russia, Saudi Arabia, and if they get their act together, Venezuela. So, yeah, no, I uh, the I think I think Ashley got way more support if I had to just tally up votes, and I think the. The, the folks that were screaming kind of, you know, oh, you're hurting the industry by doing that were particularly loud, but it was a smaller smaller choir, if you will. Yeah, I, yeah. I think at the end of the day, we're going to end up with more regulation because honestly, the industry has done a shitty job over the years of being self-regulated. And having been in this business for the last 20 years, I've seen a lot of changes. And I got to say, the most effective changes have come through regulatory compliance. And, and I'm going to give... I'm going to give Chris the the last word on this to see what he says, but I agree with you. And I, I, when I talk about we were shitty, you know, because I'm 52 years old, when we were shitty and we would mock people and print bumper stickers of freeze a Yankee and all that, I say that as someone that loves the the industry and quite frankly was probably part of the problem back in my younger days. So, so. Yeah, unfortunately, we're going to wind up with a lot more regulation. It'd be nice if we could just learn to 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 do the right thing on our own, so that we wouldn't have that regulation. But, Chris, let me give you the last word. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, maybe I would uh, disagree a little bit from my experience. Um, you know, all the field staff that I've ever worked with, they're I think ironically, they might not express it in the same way, but they're actually environmentalists in the purest sense because they're all outdoorsmen. They spend all their time hunting, fishing. They all have land. They all ride around on their four wheelers on their land. Uh, there's nobody, uh, no group of people that, that loves the environment in a pure sense because they're in it every day than the people that work in the oil field. And so, uh, you know, I think that what we have in our country is that those people uh, that you know are doing the work and have the practical knowledge uh, are actually stewards of the environment, from my experience, uh, because they understand like what is a real problem and what is not a real problem, and and they don't want to see the environment hurt any any worse than anybody else. But um, and so you know within that type of personality the the practical mindset is where i think we've gone wrong in our country because you know i don't think that it's possible to make 100 million barrels a day across the world and never have an oil spill um and you know the expectation needs to meet reality because this is a huge undertaking it's it's the drilling, the completions, the movement, the putting it on ships, taking it to refineries, the processes, the amount of energy that's in all of those processes. You can't say that all of these things can happen seamlessly and we're never going to spill a drop of oil. And so, you know, you have to get back into something where you say like, what is reasonable? And then you have to say, what is the cost benefit of it? Right? Like, 
let's say we do shut down a little, what is, what is, the, what is the cost to our society of doing that? Like, you know, nobody talks about the cost of what, what happens when a barrel of oil is $10 more expensive. And, you know, all of us on the phone, uh, it's not a determining factor in what we do, but you know what? Some people don't drive home for Thanksgiving because they can't afford the gasoline and they don't buy the plane ticket to go visit their brother because they can't afford it. Right. And so, you know, I think, there is a cost to that, right? Like, and you say, well, what is, what is the environmental cost? What is the human cost? What is, you know, what is the guy? I mean, it's stupid, but like the guy that doesn't go home for Thanksgiving, I mean, what does that do to his mental health? Right? Like, I mean, there's real issue with what we've decided to embark on and, and, you know, you can, you can cry foul on anything. And that's the easy argument. That's, that's the lazy way to approach a problem and just say, it's, it's, it, you know, we shouldn't spend, we shouldn't, you know, spill a drop of oil. Well, well, where does it stop? Like, I mean, you say like every day that you drive your car, it becomes less safe. Every day that a plane flies in the sky, it's less safe than the day it was built, right? Like, what are we going to start, you know, using planes one time and saying, well, the safety factor here is unacceptable and we should just have disposable airplanes, right? I mean, you get ridiculous at some point. And so you just say like, there's an acceptable amount of, tolerance that we have for the risk that is in, uh, in, in every operation that we do. Now, do the people that want to shut down oil and gas, is that the way they think about it? Is that their logic? No. Like, and I think that the problem with this situation is that I think it's become a right and left issue in the same way that, you know, Trump went after state tax deductions of your federal law. Well, who does that hurt? Big, big city people in the East and West Coast, right? Okay, well, that's a way to stick the jab into the liberals. And then what do you see now? Like, you've got all these rules and regulations coming from the left that are here to hurt the oil business, because that's where the rights voter, you know, money and voter base and all that is, right? And so, like, I don't think it's fair to say that, like, the response is an actual response to real problems and real issues. Like, I think what you actually see is that you've got uh, identity politics playing in and you've got, you know, people on left side trying to hurt the right side and the right side trying to hurt the left side. And one of the way the left tries to hurt the right is to go after, you know, manufacturing, go after energy business, right? Because they're all the rights. That's all the right people. So uh, I would disagree that, that our industry deserves what we've, got in that, you know, I mean, there's, there's logical, there's real regulation, but there's also getting a hundred thousand dollar fine for spilling a barrel of oil on the ground. And that does happen. And, and that that's there to hurt us. And that's not a logical or real response to the problem. That's just a way to hurt the oil business and the people in it. Chris, I think well, that- if, it, if the, if the Estes ranch is any proof of the oil and gases arguments of a location that the landowner should be able to have restoration to her property and safety and protection of her property. They have failed immensely, demonstrably, by their actions that have occurred on this place since 1924. So if, if, if the Estes field is representative, which, it may, which you could make the case it is not representative of all, of all oil fields in the United States, but certainly in the case out here and in the situation of the Estes, there is no doubt that the Antina Cattle Ranch's property has been affected by oil and gas operations. Yeah, and and I'll close this because I I uh, Chris, that was really well 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 said, and I appreciate the uh, defense. And I'll say this to close it out because I believe the three of us would agree with this in general. At the end of the day, and I don't say this enough, and I really should. I truly believe it's 
a few bad actors out in the business that uh, that really cause most of the problems, as with as is most things in life. I I agree with you, Chris, wholeheartedly that the people I worked for, the portfolio companies back in back at Kane days, and the people that would buy our stuff, you know, we'd sell to Chesapeake, XTO, and the like. I mean, those folks really truly did care about doing the right thing, and so you know, stuff pops up um that maybe doesn't get handled as as well as they should and you got a few bad apples out there and i I do think if we could figure out a way to kind of quote unquote regulate that self-regulate that i think the industry would be in a better pr place but again i appreciate you two guys coming in oh go ahead bill hey thank you very much for the invite appreciate the opportunity thanks chris for the discussion i gotta say that when the next desk as well comes to surface I love I love to see how the industry is going to respond to the uh, the next blowout. It, uh, the railroad commission's denial the sh- the, and the lack of addressing this from the uh, situation it's just a matter of time. So whether it's six months or whether it's a year from now, I suspect we're going to be having a conversation about another well out here. Yeah, well you're you're definitely uh, shining a light on it, and Chris, appreciate you coming in and and helping shine that light as well. Yep, I enjoyed it. Thanks for the invite, Chuck. Nice to meet you, Bill. Hey, thanks. Likewise, and have good, have a great day, guys. Thanks again for the, the time. Yeah, thanks, we'll guys. <laughs>